How We Got Here, Part 7, A Nation in Debt. In the first few weeks of sheltering in place, I spent a lot of time calling people up on the phone because I was worried about them. But what's depressing is that my first concern often wasn't their health, which it should have been, but their finances. Do they still have a job? Can they pay rent? Can they even collect unemployment? I got on the phone with some people that I hadn't talked to in a long, long time. It's funny that we, yeah, we knew each other as kids and didn't, you know, didn't connect for so many years. I know, and I feel badly about that. It's largely just because no, no, no. I mean, I'm so bad at like... I'm talking to Katie Pike, who now goes by Catherine. She's in her early 30s, just a few years younger than me. We grew up near each other in upstate New York and then drifted apart. I've only talked to Catherine like twice in the last decade. But you know, we're Facebook friends. These days, she lives in Southern California. I got in touch with Catherine because I knew she was suffering from something that a lot of people are suffering from. Debt. You feel like the, the debt just sort of hangs over you still? Always. Evermore. Always. I'm, I've actually been like kind of dodging calls from my government loan company because I was... Catherine doesn't have debt because she was living it up and spending beyond her means. It's because she went to college and took out loans to pay for it. I think it's... It was like 75 at its peak. Whoa, so 75 grand in debt at its peak, and you're like 22 years old, 23. After Catherine finished college, she wanted to get a master's in creative writing. She got into a few programs, but none offered any funding. So she just didn't go. I didn't realize that there was a class system already in place and that I didn't belong to the class that gets to go to graduate school because I didn't happen to have a good financial backing at that point or any family that could have let me any aid. And that's the thing about her debt. Not only is it making life harder for her in the pandemic, it's been a roadblock for years. It's really limited her options in life. When Catherine realized that more school wasn't a possibility, she started substitute teaching, which she actually really liked. And now she wants to be a special ed teacher. But the debt is getting her again because she has no time to get credentialed. She's too busy working. Catherine has two jobs. Before coronavirus, she was working six days a week, and she often did a double shift. She'd substitute teach in the morning, and then she'd change her clothes, get in her car, drive to the restaurant, and wait tables all night. Wages are so low that it took both jobs and six days of work a week just to cover her bills. Yeah, when you can't take time off to go to school because you have to pay rent, um, I, I, I feel like there's no way that I can take off like two years and go to school or one year if I want to do that like absolute hellacious master's program. This is the trap that so many workers are stuck in. Once their unions have been weakened, their workplaces fissured, their benefits taken away and their wages suppressed, people turn to loans and credit cards and mortgages. And the hope is that all this can deliver them the kind of middle class life that Americans, mostly white Americans, got in the 1950s and 60s. But in reality, a lot of debt just loads up more pressure. It adds more risk, and it takes away more options. And Americans have tons and tons of debt. Hannah Appel is a professor of anthropology at UCLA. You know, one of the most widely cited statistics on this comes from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Household debt, you know, adjusted for inflation, was at an all-time high, which is $13.5 trillion dollars. If you do the math on that, $13.5 trillion comes to an average of around $42,000 per person in America. 
But of course, it's not an average. Black and brown people have way more debt because they've been excluded from the mainstream economy and preyed on by lenders. The total amount of debt in this country has actually increased since I talked to Hannah. But even that statistic of $42,000 per person, it falls far short of how much debt Americans actually have. That statistic really is only counting mortgage debt, auto loan debt, student debt, and credit card debt. So those are all very important and it's good that it's tracking those. But if we actually think about the total indebtedness of households, which would have to include utility bills, medical debts, municipal obligations, so certainly traffic tickets, but also very significantly fines and fees in the criminal punishment system, right? Payday loans, title loans, means that even that statistic, which already on its own is historically unprecedented, is actually woefully under the real number. And its particular blind spots are for the forms of household indebtedness that disproportionately affect black and brown communities. If you want a case study in how bad debt has gotten in America, just look at student loans, which is now one of the top four sources of debt, along with credit cards, auto loans, and mortgages. Student debt is so enraging that you can hear Hannah pounding on the table as she talks about it. Student debt right now stands at $1.7 trillion, right? And that is actually second only in this country to mortgage debt. In 1990, student debt was too insignificant to measure. There wasn't even a measurement for it, right? So merely, what is that, about a little less than 30 years ago, there wasn't even a measurement for student debt. And today it is the second largest form of household debt behind mortgages. Think about how sick this is. Kids are told to go to college so they can learn and have a bright future. But when they come out, they have these huge loans. So they have to get jobs, whatever jobs they can find, to just start making money to pay their bills. So like my friend Catherine, she can't go be a special education teacher because she's stuck paying loan debt, substitute teaching, and waiting tables. And because of everything we've talked about in this series, there's no guarantee that the jobs that she does have will be enough to ever get out from the debt burden. So many people in America get trapped in this situation as early as 17 or 18 years old when they go to college. Hannah says the recent rise in debt comes from both the disempowerment of workers and the disinvestment in public goods and services. And so what happens, right, when wages stagnate? What happens when the kinds of public goods and services, including public college, including medical care, mental health care, right, including pensions, what happens when those get removed? What you get is a moment of inclusion, quote unquote, in credit markets. Hannah is talking about a concept called predatory inclusion. And once I first heard this term, I couldn't get it out of my head. Here's an academic definition from the work of Louise Seamster, a sociology professor at Iowa University. Predatory inclusion refers to a process by which a marginalized group is provided access to a good service or opportunity, but on exploitative terms. Here's a simple example. Dangerous credit and loans that are given to people who've been excluded from the mainstream economy, maybe because of the color of their skin, their gender, their immigration status, or their disability. The credit seems like a chance to move up, to get a job, an education, a house, a car, but really, it just entraps them further. You need to buy stuff? Sure, but you can't have good wages. Instead, you get a credit card with high interest. You want to go to college? Okay, but you got to take out this huge loan. Your car breaks down. You can't get to work unless you fix it. Get cash advances from a payday lender. These aren't the kind of tools that will help you get ahead. 
This is not a little loan from your parents to start a business or a low interest mortgage for a dream house that's just out of your reach. This is the kind of debt that can ruin your life. The clearest, most vicious story of predatory inclusion that I've ever reported on is what happened to the taxicab drivers in San Francisco. So just a little backstory here. In 2010, San Francisco started selling taxi medallions for $250,000 a piece. These are the permits that allow you to operate your own cab. They used to be free and awarded to people who had been driving a long time. It was a seniority system. But then to make money, the city started selling them. More than 700 drivers took out loans to get these medallions. And most of these drivers were recent immigrants from South Asia and Eastern Europe. It was hard for them to get jobs that paid enough to live in the Bay Area. There just weren't a lot of options for them. So owning a cab at that time was a rare shot at breaking into a middle class life. You'd go into debt for a short time, you drive the cab, you pay back that loan, and then you have your own taxi and some financial security. Well, after the city made tens of millions of dollars selling these medallions to these drivers, or monetizing the medallions as they say, well then just one year later, the city failed to stop Uber and Lyft from flooding the streets with cars and operating without taxi medallions. This unfair competition destroyed the cab industry. Suddenly, those 700 drivers who bought medallions were making almost no money, but they were still stuck with tens, even hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. It's literally killing them. Several cab drivers have died from stress-related illnesses while in their taxis. I did a series of stories about these drivers for KQED. This is Namdev Sharma, who ended up losing his house because of his medallion debt. Enjoying my life. But from last six years, you know, it's going worse and worse. I lost my house two years ago. Where was your house? It was Union City. When you were driving cab and you bought the house, did you ever think you would lose it? Uh, no, I was not thinking actually to lose the house. Yeah. Because me and my wife, we both were working. I was not thinking it's going to happen to us after about Medallion. I was thinking maybe we could, I could save more money. When you had to sell your house, what did you tell your kids? I told them we were losing this house. Drivers like Namdev used to wait at the airport for three to four hours for just one ride. And that was before the pandemic. Of course, now their situation is even more dire. You don't get a clearer failure of the American dream than this. I have no time for my children. No time for, I mean, family. So this, this is not a life, you know, I came to this country. This, I feel like this work is disgusting, you know. Sit here and wait and wait and get ready for the next day to do the same thing. The taxi medallions are just one example of predatory inclusion. As relatively new immigrants, the drivers had limited options. The city sold them something that seemed like a good deal, but really, it just trapped them more. Because business owners and politicians have disempowered workers in all the ways we described in this series, debt is often their only option. Here's Hannah Appel again. To make up for all of those stagnating wages, to make up for the fact that there were no longer public colleges, to make up for the fact that people didn't have the kinds of jobs that allowed them to have pensions, there was a democratization, quote unquote, of credit markets, right, of household credit. And so what does that turn into? Household debt, student debt, medical debt, credit card debt. Hannah says predatory inclusion rose right alongside the push for racial and gender equality in the civil rights and women's liberation movements. 
but she says it's a poor substitute for real, empowered inclusion in the economy. When you're trapped by this kind of debt, you don't really have a chance to get ahead. You need credit cards and loans just to get by. You're essentially debt financing basic needs, right? It's not like you're debt financing televisions. It's not like you're debt financing, you know, your third house. You are debt financing medical care. You are debt financing education. And while nobody would call incarceration a basic need, you are debt financing incarceration if you're bound up in that system, right? And so for families who don't have access to intergenerational wealth, for families who already experience discrimination in labor markets, that form of household debt financing has radically unequal effects across racialized communities. Just like with the removal of benefits, the destruction of unions, and the fissuring of work, Hannah says this giant debt entrapment system has been accelerating since the late 70s. But she says it's not some evil plot. We're actually talking about things unfolding somewhat haphazardly over decades. So did Ronald Reagan and did Margaret Thatcher have an idea about neoliberalism and tell us that there was no alternative, that rich people were no longer going to pay taxes, and thus there was no alternative but to take away the social safety net? Certainly, but it's not kind of, you know, five guys sitting around a table planning to put people into debt. Instead, it unfolded because of everything we've talked about in the first part of this series. Because we've created a society where corporations have been focused on shareholder profit, not social welfare. And in their pursuit of profit, they have taken more and more good options away from people. And to cope with all this, people work themselves to the bone. They get second jobs and they go into debt. Next time, how gig work is a culmination of the disempowerment and isolation of workers that we've talked about so far. I can imagine a world in which you had, um, you know, a, an army of Instacart shoppers who were employees who got really good benefits, who really felt dignity and value, who, in, you know, were proud of their work, who were paid well for their work. If you want to read more about debt, check out Can't Pay, Won't Pay which is written by a collection of different authors. And for a much longer look back at history, there's always David Graeber's book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years. How We Got Here is made by Alan Montecilio, Chris Hoff, and Sam Harnett. For the better part of a decade, I worked as a sound engineer for a news show in San Francisco. And after, you know, years of mixing stories and interviews, I started noticing that people really like to talk about the concept of community. And it made me start thinking that you can kind of tell how much we miss something by how much people talk about it. So I started gathering all these quotes and I made this little montage Years and years and years of people searching for community. Uh, what we try to do is build community here. But we also need to look at communities. Community. Community. Community work. Shock the community. We see that reflected here in our community garden program. The mobile food vendor community. Fight the crime within your community. They start going out to the community. Community gatherings. Making the community safer as a whole. In the local community. Make community every day. To give people the power to build community to bring the world closer together.
most of the community. Community beautification projects or community garden. And so all these communities are silenced. Community. That's the real sense of community. Communities. Community. To address the community's needs. Community relations. Pillar in the community. 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 In a community, people have to have a sense of pride in their community. We want to help one billion people join meaningful communities.